hey, let's pray and uh, we'll crack on into this passage that Nick has just read to us. As soon as this passage come up, I went, oh man, I just got to give this to Nick. He'll own it. And uh, so thanks, Nick, uh, for the reading uh, this week. He was up for the challenge straight away. Uh, so, so let's pray. Allowing God, we want uh, this morning to continue to lift up our state. Uh, we want to lift up our country. Indeed, we want to lift up the whole world that you have created. As we come to grips with living in this pandemic, uh, we read in your word and we see that down through the ages that you are a comfort and a steadfast hope when the world around us burns. You are a hope that's outside of the chaos and your, and your constant presence lets us know that the chaos will not have the last word. Uh, we pray for all levels of leadership as they seek to guide us through this. Uh, we pray for wisdom and objectivity, for unity, uh, collegial working together there. And we pray for those who are involved in the treatment, the testing, the caring uh, for the sick, not merely those that are, that actually have COVID, but all areas of health that have been stretched by this virus. We pray for stamina and rest and support and strength for those people. And we pray for those that are looking for treatment and cures, for wisdom and insight. And we give you thanks uh, that you have made us to understand science and understand the anatomy and, and medicine. And we pray that we'd be able to dial all this into finding a cure in this pandemic. For those themselves who are suffering with the physical and the mental effects, that they can receive the care they need, and we pray for your hand of grace and mercy to come and to heal and to comfort. We wrestle with suffering. We recognize that your presence doesn't make us immune to suffering, but your absence would mean that there would be no actual comfort in it and no hope beyond it. So, God, uh, who is near, uh, we pray that in this we would turn to you uh, with increasing measure, that more and more people would turn uh, to you with increasing measure. And now, as we turn our hearts and our minds uh, to your word that points us to your ultimate expression of comfort and hope, suffering and chaos, Jesus, uh, we pray that your spirit will warm our hearts with affection for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a fun fact is this. Uh, in 2019, Ancestry.com announced that they had uh, reached a milestone of 15 million DNA results. Uh, 15 million people had, had sent away to get their DNA tested and, and find out something about themselves. That's a lot of testing. We're, we're becoming familiar with testing uh, these days. Uh, Ancestry.com said it's a true sign of how deeply important it is for people to connect and learn about their past. You know, globally, at the same time, globally, approximately 26 million people had undergone DNA tests with, with just millions more choosing to go online and find out their ancestry amongst the billions of identity records that are out there. There's 14 billion alone in Ancestry.com. It's a, it's a multi-million dollar industry driven by a desire to understand and place ourselves, uh, in a bigger story of human history. And we recognize that our story uh, is greater than the actual little individual time slot. And by placing ourselves into a fuller picture, uh, we get a greater sense of our identity and our place in the narrative, uh, shaping how we see ourselves in the grand scheme of things. You know, sometimes digging into your family tree unearths some real conversation starters. You might find out that, you know, you're like part pirate, yeah. Your great, great, great uncle was that old sea dog, Sir Francis Drake. 
Or you might find out that your uh, descendants are Vikings. Like, I would find that really cool. Or, you know, hard to tell, but you might find you're 4% Mongolian. In fact, Genghis Khan's one of your ancestors. Uh, sometimes genealogies unearth family secrets. Uh, they were hidden uh, due to public scandal. Uh, we find out that we're related to the Tasmanian terror, uh, Thomas Jeffries. We won't sweep that under the carpet. And sometimes our ancestry connects us to notoriety. You, know, you dig around, you say, did you know that my ancestry revealed that I'm actually 137th in line for the, for the crown of England? Like if enough people die, I could be your king. Or, or my ancestry discovered that I'm the fourth cousin to Chris Hemworth. Like I'm, I'm basically Thor. Genealogies, uh, family trees are, are, are a great source of intrigue and significance to us. So it's kind of surprising that when we come and we encounter them in the Bible, and there's several of them, that we just skip over them, uh, you know, thinking we'd rather subject ourselves to a Celeste Barber novel or something like that. But genealogies serve to show how the narrative is all connected, that there's deep significance uh, that relates to us in this story. They tell us that God cares about history, that his care of history involves real people, that these real people um, reveal that God intersects and, and uses imperfect people to bring about his perfect plan. Genealogies keep a, a track record of God's promise and his plan with humanity a, a, as they unfold. And because we find Jesus in these genealogies, in the genealogies of humanity, we can be confident that he not only cares for humanity, but God has understood what it's like to take place in the human story of history. Genealogies tell us that God is faithful, a faithful and promise-keeping God who guides human history uh, through, the, through the sometimes chaotic episodes, through the sometimes compliant stories of imperfect people, families, rulers, and leaders. These were people just like you and I. They had dreams and ambitions. They knew joy and sorrow. They suffered uh, similar things to us and celebrated similar things. These are real people with real faults and flaws, with real needs, these were people who all had one thing in common, uh, apart from Enoch, actually. Uh, they, all, they all died. They all felt the ultimate sting of sin. But because Jesus is in this genealogy, we know that death is not the last word in this story. We know that sin will, will not ultimately reign over this story. With this genealogy, Luke gives us the whole narrative of the human story, the whole narrative of the human story of need, of, of need to, to be released from uh, the slavery of sin and how that all leads to this person, Jesus. In this genealogy, there's scoundrels and there's heroes and often these qualities exist in the same person. You know, Terah, the father of Abraham, he, he's an idolater, a, a polytheistic idolater. And his son Abraham, he's a liar. And then you go on to Jacob, he's a cheater and a swindler. And you have Judah, he's a slave trader. He consults with prostitutes. You get down to the middle of this thing and you find David, he's a murderer and an adulterer. In fact, all the way back to Adam, we see how sin makes even the very best of us broken. Luke uses this genealogy to demonstrate how Jesus uh, fulfills a promise as old as time, to come and, and, and reverse and heal uh, that script of sin, uh, a need that's universal to all of humanity. Luke wants to demonstrate the universality of the gospel to rescue from sin. 
that we find attached to Jesus. It's open to all humanity. Jesus is not just the son of Abraham, but more importantly, he's a son of Adam. He's a man. He's, he, he's human. For Luke's, for Luke, Jesus' humanity, not his ethnicity, not his denomination, his racial heritage, um, is his humanity that's a crucial thing. And by tracking back uh, to Adam, he presents Jesus as one who represents all people from all times, from all walks of life. Luke wants us to see how God is involved intimately in the human story, how he sees every single person, every single walk of life. You know, uh, if you've read Matthew's Gospel, you will know uh, that Luke's account appears uh, in a different spot. Uh, the list of names are not even close to each other. In fact, uh, after David, there are only two names that, that line up with each other uh, until we get to Joseph and Jesus. And critics of the Bible have often used this in an attempt to say that it's not good history. You know, he, he's the Bible contradicting itself. Well, Luke positions his genealogy later in his gospel. It's not a big deal. Authors are, are, are using genealogies to answer different questions. Luke is answering the question, is Jesus qualified to be the promised son of God? Not merely with respect to his divinity, which has just been affirmed at his baptism, but with respect to his humanity. The one who would reverse, uh, you know, all the dysfunction, all the disorder of sin, that the original son and representative of humanity, Adam, caused through his actions. Luke wants to show how Jesus represents all of humanity. Matthew is demonstrating how Jesus is the promised link um, you know, to Abraham and to David, which is very important to Jews who feel that Jesus is blowing up this story. But Luke has his genealogy in reverse order going as far way past uh, Abraham, uh, all the way back to Adam to show an inclusive sweep of all humanity. But most challenging is the fact that Luke names around 40 different ancestors in Jesus' genealogy. And, you know, has our, has, our, has our historian Luke rewritten um, things just to suit his own purpose? Our solutions are found in two main explanations. Uh, we just don't know enough to be sure, you know, which one is the proper one. Uh, one of the suggestions is that from David to Jesus, Matthew gives the legal descent of, of David. Uh, the men who would have legally been heir to David's throne had David's throne, you know, actually continued all the way to Joseph. While Luke gives us the descendants of David in a particular time to which finally Joseph, the husband of Mary, belonged. An example of this is where Luke says in 3.31 that, that uh, the son of David was Nathan. And we find Nathan, he's in 2 Samuel 5.14. Whereas Matthew says in 1.6 that the son of David was Solomon, who is the heir to the throne, not just, you know, a son. The two lines could, you know, easily merge whenever one of Nathan's descendants became a, a, a rightful heir to the throne. And the other suggested solution is uh, that Luke gives... Uh, Mary's genealogy and gives Joseph as Jesus' legal father. The emphasis is put on the fact that Jesus is Mary's son, biological son, not Joseph's. Nevertheless, Jesus, Joseph is still um, Jesus' legal father. It's also possible uh, that Joseph is adopted is the adopted son of Mary's father. Perhaps 
um, Eli lacked sons and adopted Joseph as his legal descendant once he married Mary. And Luke includes Joseph as Jesus' legal parent, but legally falling into Mary's ancestry, into her story. Uh, there's no way to establish it. I've probably done a poor job of explaining it. There's no way of to establish which solution is superior, except to note that these are just two of the ways uh, reconciliation of these lists takes place. And we know that Luke is a historian of notable excellence, so his, his research of the scope of ancestral history has permitted him to trace a genealogy that allows him to show how Jesus' connections to David uh, and to Abraham and to Adam demonstrate how Jesus is qualified to serve all of humanity um, by, by realizing the hope of the Old Testament promise and by realizing the hope of creation intent. Luke is using what I call the Adam genealogy. You won't find that in any commentary. Uh, it's a description I literally made up uh, to emphasize Luke's desire to use a genealogy from one Adam to another to show how Jesus is a new Adam who God has sent to create a new humanity. That's going to be the point of Luke's whole gospel. Great reversal. To be the one who will change our sinful condition, inheritance and condemnation, our natural ancestry, to, to one that will be made alive by the Spirit, to a new and eternal life um, that begins now and is found in Jesus himself. You know, there's an interesting inclusion in Luke's genealogy. Luke doesn't stop at Adam when he gets all the way back there as the starting point of humanity, but says that Adam was the son of God. Adam owes his very existence to God. Adam had a unique relationship with God as his direct creator. He didn't have parents. Now, I doubt very much, I'm pretty confident, that Luke wants us to think about Abraham, David, Joseph, and all the other descendants of Adam in the same sense that Jesus is you know, the son of God. They're not, and we're not. But what he does want to bring to life is, is two unique relationships. In Luke one thirty five, we see that the relationship of Jesus' sonship depends on his unique creation uh, in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit after leaving his eternal existence with the Father. So it seems to many commentators that the reason that Adam is called the Son of God is to establish this comparison between Adam and Jesus as uniquely and immediately, though not identically, created by God. The same creative power that made Adam out of dust was at work putting flesh on the eternally divine, formerly heavenly Jesus. It's not that it brought Jesus into being, but that it added humanity to his divinity. And this is the mystery of the incarnation of, of divine God into human flesh. We accept uh, it, marvel at it because God has affirmed it, not because you know we can explain it very well. Obviously, Adam never existed at all and is created into existence, whereas Jesus is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. His humanity is created in the womb of Mary uh, through the power of the Spirit. The comparison relates uh, also to the promise God gave Adam uh, that a descendant, a particular son, would one day undo uh, great reversal, all the chaos and dysfunction that Adam brought into the world through sin. This genealogy serves to bear witness to how God brought that 
promised to completion in real history, in real time, through real people, but also through the same miraculous power that set creation and all life in motion. Jesus is every bit connected to the human story as he is to the divine. John Piper notes that Luke, who is a traveling companion of Paul, is calling to mind in his genealogy Paul's teaching that Christ is the second Adam, the bringer of a new humanity. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 47 to 49, Paul says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as what, just as we were born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Adam is a man of dust, whose sinful nature we are all uh, born into. Generation after generation reveals that no one is immune to sin. And the greatest heroes are also some of history's worst sinners. The Bible records humanity in, in graphic detail. John Piper says that Luke stresses that like Adam, Jesus was a man and was uniquely created by God, and therefore he is a new and second Adam whose ministry will be to create and assemble a new race of humans who are not marked by Jewishness or non-Jewishness, but by the dove-like, uh, which we didn't really get into last week, but it turns up at Jesus' baptism, the dove-like, that's the gentle character of the Holy Spirit. Luke uses uh, his genealogy to affirm that God has fully entered into the human story to be its divine saviour and, and, and change its ancestry, change our very DNA, if you like, through the work of the Spirit. Uh, he's one who's interested in every single life, no matter how obscure or how unknown, no matter how messy or how glorious it's been. Uh, Jesus has come to change the way our ancestry shapes our story or by recreating us in his likeness, in the likeness of the true Son of God, through the same agency of the Spirit that has been at work in God's plan of creation to recreation. You know, in Hebrews, uh, the writer points out that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might make propitiation. Let's change, appease God, change our position before God for the sins of the people. In other words, he had to become like us to save us. Jesus, as the true and perfect Adam, was able to bear the penalty of sin uh, that is in the DNA of every Adam, of every person to live. Jesus as the Son of God, the Son affirmed by God in his baptism and his resurrection, offers his new life in the Spirit to us to make us once again children of God. Will we enjoy a new story? Will we participate in a, in a new purpose? We enjoy being the children of God. We enjoy the work of the Spirit to heal all the broken scripts of sin, and we get to participate in this new humanity and write incredible stories. And the question is, has the, has the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the work of the Spirit, changed your DNA? Uh, has it changed your ancestral story? Has it brought you into this new family? Hey, let's pray um, and finish up.
Loving God, we thank you uh, for this, this little interlude here between the baptism of Jesus and his temptations where Luke gives us his genealogy to show us how Jesus qualifies as both a son of God and son of man to fully come and to be our saviour and to bring us into a new DNA, a new ancestry, a new relationship with you. We pray that if we haven't encountered that, if we, if we haven't had our story shifted, that today we would, that we would press toward God and ask, uh, that He become real to us, that He make, that He write us into His story. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to preach out of a bedroom. And we just pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.